Thank you guys for joining. We have a very interesting hour, hour and a half to discuss some technologies, and perhaps you're already familiar with it, and, and perhaps you'll glean some important new information. I'm very excited about this, and I've been doing this for the last several years at KC, at uh, at uh, SAWC. This is a fun lunch symposium to, to moderate. We've got some great speakers for you today, but I'm really interested to discuss today. We're going to really focus on this new technology, a new foam. And you guys may or may not have seen this. It's the Cleanse Choice dressing. Have you guys seen the waffle foam is what I call it? The ones with the big holes in it. And if you had the same reaction like I did when I first saw it, I'm like, this is crazy. Like, what is this thing? It does not make any sense to me. But I will tell you right now, that foam is a game changer. That will change your perception on negative pressure. Just like the first time you ever saw the vac work. Do you remember that first time, by the way? Like, you've been doing wet-to-dry packing or something, and then you applied the vac, and you uncovered it for the first time. It was like, oh, my goodness. Something very different has happened to this wound. That's the same reaction I had with this new dressing. And so we're going to talk a lot about that, and uh, specifically my panelists will talk about that. But I'm going to introduce this topic to begin with. Just some, um, some house cleaning things. This is a sponsored, I, was, uh, re I am required to, to, to say this. This is supported by an educational grant from KCI and, and a facility company and a 3M company. Uh, to complete your evaluation and claim credits for the, se the session, you will need to input an unlock code, which is SAWCS2, which is also noted on the front of your workbook. As a reminder, the unlock code for the session evaluation to be able to claim credits is SAWCS2. All right, so let's, let's get into this. So one first thing I want to do is introduce the, our fellow speakers here. The first is Marianne Obst. She's out of St. Paul, Minnesota at um, uh, Residence Hospital, and she's a wound ostomy nurse. Did I screw that up already? What is it? Regents Hospital, excuse me. And then we have Liz Faust, who is in, out of Reading, Pennsylvania. It's Reading, not Reading. So just remember that. Do you remember, uh, you guys played Monopoly. Do you, do you remember it said Reading? Is it Reading? It's, no, so it's, it's Reading. Thank you. That is your single railroad. That's where it is. Yes, thank you. She's a nurse practitioner, a really good friend of mine. Both are very good friends of mine, and she's a, uh, she uh, does acute care. All right, so let me give the first lecture. And what we're going to really discuss in my lecture is talking about the evidence. You know, I came from a Georgetown where I was the vice chair of research, so my heart is in the evidence. And so I love talking about this from the evidence perspective. And this, uh, and I moved to Dallas, Texas. Now I work for University of Texas Southwestern, and I'm in the Department of Orthopedics and Plastic Surgery, and I'm also the medical director of the wound program. So, you know, I've taken more of an administrative role, but my heart and soul has always been in the evidence, and hopefully I'll convey some of the evidence as far as this technology. But before I ta start talking about that, I have to address sort of the elephant in the room, and that's the environment that we're all practicing in the United States, and actually globally as well. I get the opportunity to travel internationally, and I look at the resources that are available in the wound care space, and everybody has limitations and resources, uh, whether it's access to the operating room, whether it's access to clinic or supplies or, or dressings. There's always some access issues, and access is important for our patients because these wounds are very complicated problems. Some simple examples are necrotizing fasciitis, wet gangrene, and I think the biggest growing problem, at least I see in the United States and other developed countries, are surgically dehissed incisions. 
These are wounds that are created by a scalpel for elective or non-elective surgery. I think this is a huge problem. It's a growing problem. As you all know, surgical site infections, hospital-acquired infections is a big deal, and it's a quality metric now of success or failure. And so we need to start thinking about this outside the chronic wound space into spaces like surgical dehiscence. When I give lectures on wound care and uh, management of wounds, I always start with this equation. This is an equation that I, I developed trying to understand this problem. When I see a patient for the first time, let's say it's a new patient to me, it's a consultation that I'm seeing, I look at them and I assess their healing potential. And it's not necessarily in, the, in their medical record where you're going to find their healing potential. Just eyeballing them will tell you a lot. And when I look at these variables, I develop this equation to think of it in a very simple fashion. In the numerator, there's a 1. denominator, there's bacteria, perfusion, and tissue mechanics. I don't care if you're in the sternum, sacrum, and the lower extremity. Those factors matter. I think if you can adjust or create change in one of those things, you can push them to healing. But as I look at this equation, it's complete. It's, sorry, it's incomplete. What drives everything, in my opinion, is the host. And the host is the variable that's hard to nail down. Uh, it has to do with things like their, their socioeconomic status, their education level, their access to hospitals and clinics, their... Uh, what kind of, um, uh, what kind of um, access to different specialists they have in their community. It could be regional. It could be local differences. All of those factors, it could be genetics. And by the way, you know, I've talked about this in a different lecture. I think the future of wound care is not in dressings, biologics, or devices. I think it's in genomics. If we can genetically profile our patients to determine whether they're going to heal or not heal to certain therapies, then we're going to do a much better job in helping the patients that we take care of. So imagine a situation where you can genetically profile a patient. It gives you some genetic profile. And then you know what specific treatment will maximize their outcome. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, guess what? It already exists. It exists in the cancer space. We're just late to the game in the wound space. In cancer therapy, it's very customized based on the genetic profile of your patient. That's been, been done in cancer research and cancer therapies for the last 10 to 15 years. We're just very late to the game in the wound space, but I think that's the future. Our host is very complex. Limitation of resources in our patients that are older and they're sicker. I think we see that every, every day in our practices. And if you look at the profile of how sick these patients are, if you have hypertension, for example, it's like, who cares? I have hypertension. I, I can manage that. It's a manageable disease. It's not a big deal. But then you add layers like renal disease, pulmonary disease, diabetes, and anemia of disease, then it matters. And if you look across the Medicare population in the United States, 82% of the patients in the hospital at your hospital right now have five-plus comorbidities. That's a lot. These patients are really sick. And their comorbidity, pro comorbidity profile is just a singular variable in how your host is going to react to the treatment you employ. So it's very important to think about that, and this is perhaps the lowest-hanging fruit. So let's talk about this novel foam. I always want to start with the idea of standard negative pressure. Whenever you innovate a technology or device, it doesn't, it doesn't mean what you've already established goes away. It's built on that. So the foundation of this novel foam that we're going to be talking about today is built on negative pressure. All of those things still apply, and it's very important to keep understanding of that. Then you add this added dimension of installation. And if this were a house, on the ceiling of the house is the novel foam. But if you didn't have a wall, if you didn't have a foundation, the novel foam would not hold up. 
So it's very important to use these in combination. It's built on this technology of negative pressure and installation. If you've never seen the Veriflow device, it's, it's essentially what you're marrying is two different um, techniques. One is irrigation, and the second technique is negative pressure. It's the perfect marriage of those in a very user-friendly interface. That's all it is. So it's not complicated. Sometimes when people see this for the first time, saying, oh, it's just way too complicated. And there's solution going in, and it's dwelling, and then I have to program it. I'm like, not really. Do you know how to use negative pressure? Yes, I do. Do you know how to irrigate the wound? Yes, I do. Well, there you go. Then you know how to use this device. It's as simple as that. And I will tell you from my experience before leaving Georgetown, it became the standard of care for us in 2013. Over 8,000 patients have received installation therapy at one facility alone. And so I'm very well versed in the ins and outs of this technology, and I can vouch for it. There's very few things that I will vouch for, and this is one of them. This has changed our standard of care, and I'll show you some of the data that we, that we published. This was one of the first studies. is done by Larry Lavery, a good friend of mine at UT Southwestern. He runs a live pig lab. He wounded these pigs, inoculated with bacteria, and then used installation therapy on these, and we looked at the data. And it's interesting, when we, at the time that we did this paper, or wrote this paper, uh, normal saline was supposed to be just a control group. We needed some sort of irrigation solution, which was innocuous, essentially, because we really were interested in comparing installation therapy with standard negative pressure, and the installation ther the solution that we decided for the study was polyhexanide with betaine. The trade name is Prontosan. And that's a solution that we uncovered as I was looking through the literature trying to find this best irrigant for this device, this Veriflow device. And I stumbled on this, this I thought was a magic solution. It was called Prontosan, polyhexanide with betaine. Polyhexanide is antiseptic, betaine is a surfactant. So I was like, this is perfect. In fact, at Georgetown, we used so much of it that we exhausted the U.S. supply twice. And then they built us a warehouse, and then we stopped using it, and they weren't that happy with that, by the way. But and I'll show you the data that pushed us to use normal saline, but we knew we had a little clue about this very early on, and that was in this pig model. There's another pig model. This is Greg Schultz's lab where he, grow, he grows mature biofilm. It's sort of an in vivo model, but sort of not. So he wounds these pigs, takes that skin, and then grows it on an agar medium, then wounds that skin, then inoculates it with bacteria, and then grows mature biofilm. What was interesting about his study with using installation therapy was that normal saline did not do very well against this mature biofilm, but polyhexanide with betaine really did very well as far as reducing the amount of bacteria. This is an internal study from KCI. Chris Lessing published this study. I think it's very important in many different aspects. But the thing that strikes me the most is a question that was a vexing question I was asked constantly about this therapy. And this is the question I'm going to pose to you guys. I know almost everybody, if not everybody in this room, uses standard negative pressure. That, is that correct? Just standard negative pressure. The answer is probably yes. Now, this is the harder question. How many of you use continuous setting versus intermittent setting? How many use continuous? Be honest. Okay, so did we. And most of you do, right? But you know we're not supposed to. You guys know that. The, the data from Moriquaz, Argenta, Dennis Orgill, all of those people... They suppose the theory that the intermittency is what causes negative pressure to work better. So if you set it on continuous because of logistical issues, for per, perhaps it's pragmatic issues that you say, oh, we would set it on continuous, we weren't supposed to. But we were still getting pretty good results, I would argue. But, you know, technically we were supposed to use intermittency. So this is a, another animal study looking at comparing intermittency versus continuous on granulation thickness. But the added dimension is adding installation. 
Because when the question that I was asked often was, well, Paul, you guys are getting great results with installation therapy because you're doing intermittency, because it's dwelling. So there's a pause, if you will, of negative pressure. I didn't have an answer to that. So when this paper was published, I'm like, look, it's not just about the intermittency. That's a piece of it. But I think there's some added dimension of the installation as well. All right, so I want to show you two studies that was published by John Lantis, a good friend of mine out of New York. He's a vascular surgeon, and it goes to this idea of bacteria. And he published this paper, and I remember him presenting it for the first time, uh, and it hadn't been published at that point. And what it essentially says is he compared two groups, an installation group and a standard negative pressure group. And what he looked at was what he called bio-burden, and he looked at the reduction over seven days. In the installation group, significant reduction of bile burden. Whereas the standard negative pressure group, there was actually an increase in bile burden. And I thought that was interesting. But after he sat down, I got up and I said, John, that's a horrible study. Because if you look at your end size, it's a small end, and I don't know how to define bile burden. What does that mean? Is that bacteria? Is it non-viable tissue? Is it dead cells? What is it? Is it live cells? I have no idea. And so he said, Paul, just, give, just be patient. I have another paper that's about to be published, and it's this one, where he did biopsies of wounds with installation therapy or with standard negative pressure, and again, he showed a consistent finding. In science, when you find consistency, then the, the story's probably true. That's how I think of it. And he showed a decrease in, in CFU counts with installation therapy, whereas he saw an increase with standard negative pressure. Now, this is where I have to be very careful. Because I'm not saying that negative pressure causes infection. But at the time of the technology where the Veriflow wasn't available, it's all we had. It was probably still better than wet-to-dry packing. But now we've got something that can really target bacteria and bacterial formation and attachment. And I think that's important. And it also was evident in the first Lancet paper. This is the pivotal study that was published back in 2006 that, that gave us an idea that, or 2005, that showed that if you compared the control group, which could have been a variety of things in this Lancet paper versus standard negative pressure, there was a higher number of infection. It was still small in the VAC group versus the standard of care group. So we had some clue about that. It wasn't significant, but I think it was interesting, and the story continues to, to grow. And now that we've got a technology that can... Can, can target that, I think it's much more powerful. This is the first large case series that was published by a plastic surgeon out of France, Luteo, and he published this nice long case series on a variety of wound types and looked at healing rates, and he reported a 98% closure or coverage rate using installation therapy with normal saline. And I thought that was very interesting. This was our first study from Georgetown we published. And I compared negative pressure, standard negative pressure, versus installation as six minutes of dwell and 20 minutes of dwell. And what I was interested in were surrogate outcomes, including length of hospitalization, number of OR visits. And those things that are important, not just clinically from our perspective, but from the patient perspective and the payer perspective. So I wanted to capture all of those things. And er on every, every variable, installation therapy was superior to that of standard negative pressure. This is really our pivotal study that transformed our understanding of installation as our standard of care. Now, that was at Georgetown. How about let's go somewhere else? This is Alan Gabriel, who's a plastic surgeon in the Pacific Northwest, did almost an identical study that we did at Georgetown and showed almost identical results. Decreased length of hospitalization, decreased number of operations that the patient required prior to clearing of the infection. All very, very similar to what we publish. Again, 
in science, it's about consistency of the story. So let's go somewhere else. This is another surgeon. This is an orthopedic surgeon, Mike Timmers. And he published a series, um, a comparative series, looking at, again, installation therapy versus standard of care, which was often standard negative pressure. He showed exactly what we showed, decreased length of hospitalization, decreased number of operations, and he showed something additional to that, which is decreased readmission rates. And all of this, those factors are very important in this current healthcare environment, regardless of where you live in the United States, Canada, Europe, it doesn't matter. It's all very relevant. This was a study going back to the question of antiseptic solution because people are really, they have ownership of the solution they like, right? Oh, I'm a Dakin user. I'm an acetic acid user. I love Vosh. I hear all that stuff all the time. So I wanted to answer the question in combination with this therapy, what is the most effective solution choice? So I compared prospectively in a randomized fashion normal saline, this is where normal saline comes back, back to, uh, of interest to us, compared to polyhexanide with betaine. And what we found in this head-to-head -head study was there's really no difference between the outcomes, those surrogate outcomes that I discussed earlier, except for the time to final surgical procedure actually favored normal saline. So if you were to ask me, what solution do you use the most? It's normal saline. It's safe, it's cheap, and it's just as effective as any other more expensive antiseptic that, that I know of. Now, if you, but in conclusion of, the, of this slide anyway, if you love Dakin's, keep using Dakin's. All I caution you is use Dakin's sort of prudently, maybe for the t first 24 to 48 hours, then switch over. Okay, don't use it consistently because it's like a napalm bomb. It's indiscriminate, it's bleach. It will kill the friendly villagers as well as your enemy. Just think of it that way, okay? Just be, just be cautious. This is the first consensus panel. Now, this has been reconvened over and over again over the course of the last several years. What, what's, what I really want to target in on is this. It's not necessarily the indication, but it was the second one. We were very adamant that this technology did not replace debridement, and then this thing came along. And it's interesting because there's no indication for debridement with this foam. It's not, there's no indication for it. I just want to warn you. And I'm talking completely off-label right now. Okay, and KCI or KCI affiliates can never say this. So use this word because it's a dirty word. It debrides. And this mechanical debridement concept is the game changer in my mind. Because it's not only about disruption of non-viable tissue, it's preventing readherence of bacteria because of the mechanical action that this applies. So let's, let's take an example. This was my first case, by the way, and I will, I will be honest, I was underwhelmed with the results. I was like, we were getting this with installation. This foam does not add any more benefit than what we were currently using. But then we were struck with a patient like this, and you all have these as well. This is a sacral ulcer in the ICU on pressors on an insulin drip intubated. Not a surgical candidate, really sick person. So if you look at this, what are your options? Wet to dry packing, which was what we had ordered, which was taking 45 minutes per dressing change BID. You know, for me, from a resource perspective, makes no sense. What is your other option? Collagenase. Let's talk about collagenase. And since there's only really one on the market, let's talk about Santal. I like Santal. For small wounds, and if you have all the time in the world, great. But, you know, because it works. But it works at a glacial pace. Let's, let's face it. And how many tubes of $120 of 30-gram tubes of Santal do you need to cover the surface of this wound? A ton. The, the biggest piece that I don't like collagenases, especially in these kinds of cases, is it's petrolatum-based. Look at the ingredients. 
What does that mean, petroleum-based? It's oil-based. It's occlusive. And the body does an autolytic process of producing exudate. You guys see that. There's a reason why wounds are exudative, because it's the body's autolytic process of washing away. Now you've occluded that process by using something like Santil. I think it's a detriment to the patient, and it, it disrupts the, the body's ability to try to heal it. So that's why I have an issue. So those are the options until this, until the waffle foam. And this is day five. When we saw this, we said, that's very different. No sharp debridement of any kind. No instrumentation of any kind. And this is, at this time, we were doing every five-day dressing changes. Stay on label, but we were sort of pushing the boundaries, if you will. But here's day 21. Remember, these patients probably will never heal. But can you step them down from the unit to telemetry, to a main floor, to a nursing home as quickly as you possibly can? I think it, it addresses the efficiency question. Here's another one. This is a sacral, uh, sorry, ischial ulcer. Look at that SCAR. I'm like, let's challenge this waffle foam and let's see what happens. Here we are at day five. It's starting to disintegrate. Again, no sharp instrumentation of any kind. This is day 10. It's gone. It's doing something, and I think it's a mechanical piece. This is a calciphylaxis of a medial thigh. The patient was a surgical candidate, but she refused surgery. So what do you do with a patient like this? Well, let's try the waffle foam. This is no sharp debridement. No instrumentation has touched this patient. So that's pretty dramatic. It's ready. If you're a surgeon in the, in, in the audience, that's skin graft right now. It's ready. Let's skin graft it. So I think this is where it's the game changer, and they're going to show more. Uh, my fellow panelists will show more cases, but I think this is what turned me around in this idea saying this is not going to go away. Now, there has been some algorithms published on this. I'll tell you it's early. The data is early on this. But I, I really see a huge promise to this technology. I think it will change practice. Because even if you do have access to a surgeon, perhaps they just don't do a very good job debriding, and that happens. I've seen it. Or your surgeon's not interested in coming to, to take the patient to the OR. The surgeon's not a candidate, or the patient's not a candidate for the OR. There are a variety of reasons where this can, can work for you. And what happens is, uh, this is a mechanism of action that I think happens. Okay, this is the way I conceptualize it. As, as the fluid goes in, it, it sort of moisturizes, gets into the nooks and crannies of the wound. And then when the negative pressure is turned on, it gets pulled into those big circles and literally cuts that tissue and shears that, that tissue. And so it's mechanically debriding, in my estimation. Then it's removed. And then you continue to program it to continue to use. So I used to use this slide to talk about installation therapy. But I think of it differently now. This is my local target. Okay, and there's a, this is the detergent aisle. And I used to talk about the fact that from the solution choice perspective, it doesn't matter. All of these will probably work to clean your laundry. And the same thing with your solution choice. All, anything that you like, you probably can get the wound clean. And then I, what, I would, what I would talk about, though, is that perhaps it's not about the solution choice, but the washing machine. And when you talk about the washing machine, this is where this cleanse choice, this waffle foam, this analogy really applies. It's the agitation. It's the mechanical energy that's transmitted to the surface of the wound that creates this environment to, to start to heal. In conclusion, I just want to say wounds and patients are harder. And I will tell you, unfortunately, they're not going to get easier. They're going to continue to be harder. We need to equip ourselves with adjunct therapies that can help us. And I'm, I'm the first to ask for help because I know I can't help everybody. And this novel foam is a paradigm shift. I guarantee you, you try it once, 
you're going to be like, what in the world? This is so different and so much better than what I'm used to seeing. Thank you very much. Can you guys hear me? Oh, there. Okay, good. Um, so I'm going to be discussing about improving the healing characteristics of complex balloons. I'm going to be discussing case studies a little bit more in depth and talking about my experience. So uh, Dr. Kim did mention I'm an acute care nurse practitioner. Um, I do woundostomy continence consultation for my hospital, so I go to a variety of settings. Um, my, my coverage areas are ICU, um, orthotrauma, um, cardiac patients, and um, oncology patients. So that's my primary focus for a lot of these cases. Um, but we all have the problem children of wound care, and we see these all the time, and these are just our chronic wound care types. Um, and we certainly are seeing more and more pressure injuries, as I think Dr. Kim alluded to, our patients are getting older and sicker, but I would also say that some of our patients are younger and sicker, um, because I'm getting you know, 20-year-olds with surgical dehiscence and things like that that shouldn't really be that sick. Um, so everybody's toolkit's different, especially now with our value analysis process, and that's a whole nother lecture for me to, to talk about um, that process. But everybody's toolkit is a little bit different. And I know that when I got the Veriflow tools added to my toolkit, it was a game changer, as Dr. Kim mentioned as well. So. Um, now, the, my colleagues reach out to me and say, yeah, I want that special foam. Um, I'm going to be talking about some accessory products, which include like barrier rings and hydrocolloids. If I say an adapt barrier ring, that might be an Ekin barrier ring in your facility. We're all talking the same language, though. So treatment options. So when I get a consult for um, a patient who has a wound, we talk about if a patient has a bacterial burden to it. And, most of our chronic wounds, and especially patients that are coming into the hospital who are sick, have a bacterial burden to it. So the options are topical silver therapies, cadexamer iodine, enzymatic debridement ointment, surgical debridement when possible or appropriate, and I will add the negative pressure wound therapy. So there's traditional negative pressure, um, there's installation and dwell, which is Veriflow, and then there's the cleanse choice dressing. So again, expanding our toolkit. And then other supportive therapies based upon the wound type. So compression dressings, um, revascularization, offloading devices, et cetera. Um, these are the factors that affect my treatment decisions. So I do the wound assessment. The wound size is certainly, as Dr. Kim alluded to, Santal may be appropriate for a smaller wound, but I'm not going to throw three tubes of collagenase into a, a large sacral wound. Um, tissue quality, so what kind of tissue we're working with. Um, if you're looking at granulation tissue, fluff, non-viable tissue, however you want to say, and drainage. So what's the quality of the drainage? And I think that's really important for me um, when I'm doing my clinical decision-making for a wound to know what the drainage is like. Is there, uh, is it thicker drainage? Is it malodorous? Is it um, copious? Or is there scant drainage? And then we look at the other things like blood flow, infection, what the patient's overall clinical status, and the external factors. Like if I'm sending a patient home with a therapy that they're unable to provide themselves. <clears throat> so the paradigm shift of negative pressure is that we, we all know that negative pressure has been 
preparing the wound bed for closure, reducing edema, promoting granulation tissue. It's kind of been that gold standard, and it's indicated for acute chronic traumatic, subacute dehist, et cetera. Um, it's got the macro strain and the micro strain, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like this has been well established, but I do want to go into the things that Veriflow has added to that. So we now are able to cleanse, treat, and heal the wound a little bit differently with the negative pressure with installation. So I love this slide because it shows irrigation versus installation. And so that I after negative pressure I is installation. So irrigating is different. Irrigating is running water over. Um, installation means that you're dwelling it. And so that's much different. So when I gave this lecture in the South, I can actually relate it to this. So there's this thing, this fishing called noodling. Do you guys know what noodling is? So if you don't know what noodling is, um, it's a form of catching catfish with your extremities. I'm told mostly hands, but some people say you can use your feet as well. Um, and some podiatrists said there's been some toes gone missing doing that. So um, noodling is when you would take your fingers and your fingers would be pretend to be the worm and you stick it into a river bank into these little areas where the catfish like to live. You wouldn't know the catfish are there. And you stick it in and you fish them out, you grab them by your hand and that's noodling. You caught a fish with your hand. That's my understanding. I've never personally noodled. Let me just make that a disclaimer. So if, if there's any proficient noodlers in here that want to correct me, I'll, I'll be up here later. Um, but I think of that when I look at the crevices that are on a wound. It's not like a wound is a V-shape and I'm making good contact with every crevasse that's in that wound. I need something that's going to go in and potentially pull out a pocket of bacteria that's hiding out in there or some exudate. If I irrigate my wound before I put negative pressure on, I'm running across the surface. I'm not noodling out that bacteria that's hidden in that crevasse. Um, appropriate PSI is important, but you still need to hit that target area. So installation is much different. You're talking about babbling brook versus filling up a lake, okay? And so I think that's really important to mention. And the other thing is that you're actually protecting it from external contamination. So sure, we could do wet to dries to try to get rid of some negative or non-viable tissue. We could routinely clean the wound with that. But again, nursing time, the amount of time that it's going to take for them to do that, if they're incontinent, we're protecting them from that external source and it's automatic. So nursing doesn't have to do anything additional other than monitor that the canister's filling up and the solution's hanging. The other piece that was a game changer for the Veriflow in my facility was that patients weren't going for repeat washouts. So we previously had surgeons who loved to take patients back to the OR every day, every other day for washouts, and they would use the pulse levac in the OR and the patients would come out with like a wet to dry dressing or betadine soap dressing, which is a whole nother topic. Um, but we were able to show this slide which is um, from 2014 that showed the comparison between pulse lavage and Veriflow with wound cleansing and then pulse lavage um, and Veriflow with edema. And so on the lower um, part of this graph on the right, you'll see that pulse lavage actually increases the tissue edema and negative pressure with installation and dwell actually decreases the edema. And so that was really important 
because our surgeons felt like they needed to clean the wound and they were doing more tissue damage and potentially the cytokines that were needed to come to the, the wound bed surface in order to heal the wound weren't able to get there because there was so much swelling. And then every other day they're recreating this acute wound. So this is one of my first case studies. This is from 2016. She had um, uh, staff in her, not MRSA, but MSSA um, in her hand. She was a cashier at a local grocery store and she said she got it from touching dirty money. She's very healthy, 72 year old. She just had a history of hypothyroidism and diverticulitis. Um, she was not our complex patient, but she certainly got a complex infection. She had gone for five washouts by the time I met her, and the plastic surgeon said, I don't think I can save your thumb. We're going to have to amputate. She refused. Wound care gets consulted, right? So that's a common <laughs> theme in my hospital, when in doubt, consult wound care. Um, and I saw this is the, the surgical image from the OR case, and I... Um, he placed a betadine dressing and I got to see her the next day. This is what she looked like when I met her at the bedside. Look at all the edema in that hand. Sure, it could be infection. Sure, it could be from the Pulsovac, but there's lots of edema and we weren't addressing it. So I used Veriflow on her. Certainly, it was a complex dressing because we had to connect all the incisions that were already there. I used my barrier rings and then making sure that the trackpad was on the dorsal aspect of the hand so that it could dwell over. That is very important, the trackpad placement from a logistical standpoint, because the um, installation therapy needs gravity in order to get that solution over the foam. So if you're placing it at the lowest spot, it's never gonna get to the highest spot. <clears throat> and I'll show you with an abdominal wound, something like that. So this is her first dressing change. So. This was two days later, or I'm sorry, three days later, because of course it was like over a weekend. She was starting occupational therapy that day, all of the fun stuff. So it was a big challenge. She had no leaks. Um, she was able to move her hand, but just look at how greatly improved her edema was. And you can see the fresh epithelial edge there, right? That she's actually showing signs of healing. That's not maceration, that's fresh epithelium. Look at the dorsal hand, how, how much less edema was there. So. The hospitalist came in and the plastic surgeon came in and said, wow, that looks great. We can discharge her home, right? So I get three days with her. She's been there for three weeks, right? I said, well, let me, let me have another dressing change of the Veriflow and then I'll transition her to traditional back therapy for discharge. So they let me have that based upon her LACE readmission score, which our case management department gives them a score and it's their risk for readmission. Okay, so I said, you know, her risk for readmission is gonna to be too high unless we can try to cover as much tendon as possible. So this was the next dressing change. Look at all that healthy granulation tissue. Um, the edema is totally down. She's got fresh epithelial ads. On that thumb, she's almost completely covered with epithelial tissue now as well. And she had to complete her six weeks of IV antibiotics as an outpatient. This was the the difference of five days of Veriflow therapy when she had been there for three weeks before I met her. This was her, she healed before her IV antibiotics were completed. And she healed with negative pressure, transitioned to local wound care. So this is our getting them to closure quicker. And this was just traditional Veriflow therapy. This wasn't this new waffle foam. 
Um, so this is the waffle foma logarithm that I utilize in my facility. So the patient's unable to go to the operating room. There's typically three categories that they fall into. It's a complex, um, it's a palliative wound care patient that does not want to go to the operating room. It's a patient that um, is not medically able to go to the operating room. In other words, they're in ICU on pressors or something. Or it's a patient that's had an operative debridement performed and there's still slough in the tissue. Maybe it's marbled, maybe the surgeon's not the best, maybe the patient just continues to develop slough. So all of these patients are um, Veriflow Cleanse Choice patients for me. Dr. Kim had put this slide up earlier and I'm just gonna break it down a little bit. This was from um, one of our consensus panels. And so if you have a wound with devitalized tissue, you're still doing your wound assessment ongoing patient optimization and cleansing and debridement. But in that lower right-hand corner, is the wound adequately cleansed or debrided? Meaning greater than 60% um, total surface area, which is just a number. Um, so if the answer is no, is the patient a candidate for excisional sharp debridement? If it's yes, potentially take them to the OR. If we can't take them to the OR immediately, even putting the Veriflow Cleanse Choice on for one to two days can help improve your debridement in the OR as well. Um, if the patient's not a candidate for negative, or for sharp debridement, you can start the Cleanse Choice immediately um, and then reevaluate at every dressing change. So I'm gonna go through some case studies. This is my young sick patient. So 41 year old, came in with altered mental status. She's type one diabetic, came in with a UTI, found to have DKA. Her blood sugar on admission was 16.58. Her hemoglobin A1C was 16.5, so she's really rocking those numbers. She met septic criteria. She had a UTI, but when we did a head-to-toe skin assessment, they found this necrotic area on the back of her thigh. General surgery was consulted. They performed an IND, and I'm going to put that in air quotes, and you'll see why. Um, and then they said she was found to have a collection of purulence, but too unstable for the operating room. They ordered wet to dry dressing changes, sent her up to the medical ICU. And the nurses kept begging the general surgery residents to, con to consult the wound care team. And so five days after admission, we get consulted. And in our consult, it says the wound is unvacable. Oh, you know what that's like? For, an, for a wound care nurse to hear that, it's like game on. I'll show you what's vacable. So this is what I saw. I'm sorry for putting an anus in front of everybody at lunchtime, but this is the necrotic area, and she was overtly incontinent. We had a fecal management system to try to divert, but she was leaking around that. You can see she's got moisture-associated skin damage around both the wound and her perirectal area. Um, so I put air quotes IND because it's just, it's all necrotic. Like what were they INDing? It's not like a cavity, it's just a superficial necrotic area, right? So typically I would not back this, right? But now I had a different tool in my toolbox and now I can. So I used the Veriflow Cleanse Choice on her with some barrier rings. I used the cyanoacrylate around the wound in order to help allow me to get a good seal with the drape. <clears throat> and so I took a look at her and all of her things, and you can see the wound size isn't huge, the quality's horrible, and she had minimal drainage. So we went through, she's um, not adequately cleansed or debrided, she wasn't a candidate for sharp 
debridement, so we started Cleanse Choice. This was the first dressing change. So you can see the improvement of her peri wound and that we've softened up that tissue. And then the next dressing change, we had Gen Surge come back and see the unbackable wound and see what they could do. And they did a bedside sharp debridement. Now we've got something that we really can work with. So now we see that the wound's kind of enveloped open. And I'm just going to click through because um, she was there for about a month before she went to an LTAC. And we kept Cleanse Choice on her. And she improved over time. And we did dressing changes every 48 to 72 hours. And we eventually moved her from Cleanse Choice to just traditional Veriflow. And that was the day she left. Um, and she did not get readmitted to my hospital, so I'm assuming she went on to heal. My next case is a palliative care patient. She's a 75-year-old woman. She had stage four endometrial cancer. She had a tumor debulking and had a midline incision. She went to the rehab hospital with a closed incision. She developed um, volume overload, some pulmonary distress, and she ended up dehissing her uh, surgical wound about 26 days postoperatively. <clears throat> this was the original picture that the GYN resident um, had sent and ordered a vac, so the vac got placed by bedside staff. Um, and this is what I found in the canister when I went to see her. And so I don't know if you can see, I don't know if my hair, right here, you see that thicker exudate and how greenish tan the exudate is? So that thick exudate really doesn't move through the tube well. So this would be a good patient that we can use installation therapy to help move, solubilize some of that debris and help move it out of the wound space because that, when it stays against the wound space, is just going to create more of a bio burden and more inflammation in the wound, delay healing. So we took a look at her wound. The wound size is a typical midline, except she had continued to dehiss superior to where that other one was. Tissue quality was poor. She had lots of non-viable tissue and the drainage was thick. Perfect candidate for a cleanse choice because she was not adequately debrided. She did not want any sharp debridement because she had a palliative plan. She just wanted to go home and die. She was actively, you know, dying. And so we we're just trying to get her so that we didn't have to mess with her belly too much while she's trying to deal with actively dying, right? So we're giving her the best treatment option based upon her clinical situation. So <clears throat> this is how I applied the Veriflow Cleanse Choice because she had dehissed a little bit superior to the original wound. You can see that non-viable tissue, but I use, I use barrier rings a lot when I use Cleanse Choice and Veriflow dressings to isolate and to prevent maceration. And then I always fill the umbilicus with it too because the umbilicus can become like a little pool for the installation therapy if you don't protect it. But you notice how the trackpad is placed at the superior aspect, whereas typically in if I was just placing back therapy on her, it would be at the inferior aspect. Um, but here, because I need it to the installation solution to go over the entire wound, I have to place it at the superior. So, and then I just um, bridged them and I spiral cut the thin cover dressing. Um, the contact layer, which I don't like the word contact layer because it seems protective, but it's not. The contact layer in the cleanse choice is actually the most aggressive layer. I cut it in like a Y so that it gets good contact with the sides of it. 
I found if you lay one piece, it'll hammock and you won't really get in touch with the tissue. So just a suggestion if you have that. <clears throat> so this is the progression over a week. And in Teo's study, he found that about three dressing changes or 90s of therapy is really when you saw the most bang for your buck. So you can see she really gets that red tissue on that day. So we sent her home, or we sent her to a sniff um, in comfort measures um, with traditional VAC therapy um, on the 12th then. <clears throat> and that's one week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then this is another case study of a 64-year-old male. He had a lateral heel wound managed by an outpatient podiatrist. He had diabetes, um, hypothyroid, peripheral vascular disease. Um, he was admitted to my facility after he had had a flap procedure that had failed. Um, he had a rotational flap of, for wound closure. Um, he went to his post-op visit and it was obviously infected. Um, they gave him some oral doxy and then they sent him for a follow-up appointment. At that follow-up appointment, he ended up coming into the hospital for IV antibiotics and this is just sad. But this is what his wound looked like when he was admitted. So obviously there's some infection there and some tissue necrosis. Um, he was a patient who was painfully neuropathic, so he had some neuropathy, but not loss of sensation. So he had hypersensation. So um, for him, pain management was really challenging. <clears throat> so they did an IND of the heel. They did VAC application. He continued to have slough within his wound base. Grew wound soup there of MRSA, Enterococcus faecalis, serratia. <clears throat> and then this was the game changer probably for him was that he underwent a femoral um, bypass so that he actually got revascularized. So obviously the wound size isn't that big, tissue quality is really poor, drainage wasn't that much. He did have um, some infection, was treated with IV antibiotics. So was he adequately debrided? No. Had they already debrided him? Yes. Did he want to go back to the OR? No. So um, we placed the Veriflow Clems Choice on him, um, and I'm sorry that picture's not the best. Um, he had a lot of pain with it, so the next dressing change, we used some lidocaine in the dressing soak tool in order to help with some of that. His pain was much better. Um, we reapplied it and we used a cohesive seal. You can see some of his periwound um, tissue is lifting a bit. And then this was day of treatment seven, and so it was that third dressing change we started to see it. So at this point, he went over to our rehab hospital. We continued with just Veriflow therapy. And you can see as he improved through everything, um, when he got discharged from the acute care rehab, he went home with traditional VAC therapy. And this was him before he got skin grafted. Um, which was day of treatment 27. So again, getting him to that um, endpoint much quicker. So how do you create a culture shift with negative pressure? Because our, our surgeons told me directly, this wound is unvacable, right? And so uh, people will often say to me, well, you can't put a vac on that wound because it has more than 20% slough in it. And that's not true anymore, right? So we have the option. So a lot of staff education. So we include surgeons, our OR staff, our educators, the residents are huge, nursing staff, and then our hospitalist team. Because we were finding that our hospitalists weren't referring to us because they felt that they needed the surgeons. Then the surgeons wouldn't 
do a surgery and then the patient didn't have an appropriate treatment plan that was aggressive. And so now our hospitalists are like, can you put the cleansing one on or use the waffle vac, they'll say sometimes. And so now we're working a little bit more collaboratively to take a holistic view of that patient, which is really the goal. So um, <clears throat> now there's less of a delay in getting the patient the therapy that they need. Access to supplies, that was the other thing that was really big for us. So making sure that the supplies were there. Um, if we had a patient, especially a patient with a larger wound, we would get additional canisters in the room or solutions in the room. I also limit to pretty much normal saline. I'll use acetic acid, Vosh, and Deacon's occasionally as well, but I limit it to 24 hours. So I tell the nurse, when this bottle's done, you just hang saline. And that makes life so much easier for everybody. Um, because then the nurses don't have the challenge of how to hang a bottle versus a bag. The saline is readily accessible. And if there's any problems, we tell them just to switch to normal saline solution. So adding the PARSOC. The other thing that we did was we made um, loss in numbers of how to order the appropriate vac supplies for every resident that came in, like a laminated one that they can keep in their, um, in their badge. And that helped a lot as well because our storeroom was not familiar with all of the products and neither were our surgeons. So we were having mismatches. Um, starting negative pressure with installation well earlier in the hospitalization. So not waiting until, you know, the OR a few days from now. We were making sure that we got it started kind of on admission. And then standing order sets so that if there was any problems or troubleshooting, it was off shift, the staff felt empowered that they could switch from Viraflow therapy to traditional vac until there was an expert back the next morning to troubleshoot what was going on with it, if there was any blockage alarms or leaks or something like that. So, um, and that we found really helped things from getting, um, dis the therapy wouldn't get disrupted as much with that. I think these are my references. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna hand it over to Marianne. I always get so um, enamored listening to these two, I forget that then I got to get up here and talk too. <laughs> so thank you for being so patient. You guys are an amazing group. Um, we got about 25 minutes, so I'm going to kind of move through my presentation pretty quickly. So I'm the complex abdomen specialist at Regents Hospital, which is kind of a weird specialty. I am a wound nurse, but my specialty is fistula management. So Dr. Kim talked to us about uh, the science and Liz did the care algorithms. I'm gonna do kind of what my mom used to call the who, what, why, where, when, you know, when you were writing a paper in high school. So part of the what you need is a canister and a cassette installation solution and a foam choice. And we also did bundle this through our um, electronic medical records for ordering in materials. So when you ordered your medium dressing to be placed, you'd get the canister, the cassette, the barrier rings, all that kind of stuff all together because I would get to the patient's bedside and have, you know, missing one thing, which is really frustrating. The, this cool pump actually is fun for us because we got to get rid of another uh, piece of equipment 
because this will actually do incisional vacs, open abdomen um, dressings, the installation, and the regular vac. So we were actually able to get rid of um, some other <coughs> pumps, which is really good for our hospital's um, bottom line. So we all know the negative pressure uh, track pad. We're pretty familiar with it. So the new pieces are we have this installation track pad, which is the one that's on the right-hand side. And what I love about this is it's super low profile and kind of squishy. And so I actually put it on the posterior of people's bodies where you'd never normally put um, a track pad. You know, we're always bridging to the front. And then, just to make it even more fun, they added one that does both. And so smaller wounds or areas where I want to do installation and removal, I can use that uh, specific one. Hello. Um, so ordering installation is another thing. We have the EPIC system, as probably many of you do. And so what we found is that um, ordering wasn't being very complete. So we made it into a phrase that they can't close the order unless they actually put in those five um, parameters. So the next piece was is how much do we put into these um, foam dressings. So we went to the International Panel's uh, article and found um, how much they recommended for each of the different sized foams. So for the waffle foam with the thin contact layer coverage, we need 66 mils or about two medicine cups. And just having that rule of thumb helped us all to kind of um, have a better idea of how much to put in. So if you have a thick foam, the thick foam cover and the, the waffle contact layer, it's about 100 cc's, so about four cups. And then we just use percentages and say, you know, well, if you're only using half of a foam, you know, we cut that in half. So um, this, I'm sure I can figure this out. This is what it looks like when the, when the fluid is coming. If you're the wound in the audience, then I'm putting the fluid through the thin waffle layer. So that's that first 30 milliliters coming in. And then, so you're like looking at the interface between the wound and the, um, and that contact, that waffle contact layer. So you can see that it goes right through this foam and gets to the interface of the wound and the contact layer, which is where we want it to be. And then the, the next phase is when the negative pressure comes back on, you can see how it's kind of fracturing, like Liz was talking about, that non-viable tissue and putting it back into the canister. So one of the questions we have is we have some patients with larger wounds, as I'm sure you guys do. So this little gal, we had 12 large um, cleanse choice dressings on with a really bad necrotizing infection. So we have four pumps running, all with um, on the same wound um, bed. And so the question always is, is can they run without being in synchrony? And my answer to you is, they seem to run without synchrony in my facility. <laughs> Um, we, we do find that sometimes some of the canisters will fill more than the other, but the therapy doesn't get disrupted. And sometimes with these huge wounds, you just can't use one pump. So how are we going to integrate that into our case studies? So here's a soft tissue injury that came from the University Hospital over to us just for some soft um, tissue debridement. We put them in right up factory standards of the 10 minutes, three and a half hours. That's what is on the pump when you turn it on. He was one of our very first Veriflow cases. So he had this kind of soft tissue injury. You can see he's kind of sloughy all over. It was elbows and legs. And so we have the two kits. And this is where I had my huge epiphany. 
So in the large kit, you get the installation that's separate from the negative pressure, and in the medium kit, you get the one that's combined. But it took me until this patient to figure that out, because <laughs> I kept going, how do I get that other one, you know? But So that's the difference between the kits. So applying Veriflow is interesting, because you do want to use gravity. And so for him, he was in the bed, so we actually put the installation kind of down lower on his leg, and the negative pressure up higher on his thigh. A little technique tip is where the negative pressure is pulling out um, some of this uh, tissue that we don't want on the wound bed. I like to add a little foam to the um, to where the negative pressure track pad is, and it helps to decrease blockage. So new alarms, new alarms for us. These guys make it sound super easy, but we had alarm issues at our facility when we first started, and so. Because our, our muscle memory of VAC therapy is that if you have an alarm, it's either the canister's full or you have an air leak, right? But now we have new alarms because we have installation-based alarms. And so what we did was we decided to make a program. We called it Listen to Your Unit. And so when we gave it to our surgical residents and the charge nurses, and we said, well, when the nurses call and say, hey, this pump is large, can you come take a look? The answer to them was no but go back to the pump and push the question mark and read to me what you have. And just doing that over a couple months, the nurses <laughs> were amazing, of course, and they were like, well, I don't gotta call somebody just to have them tell me to push the question mark. And it really leads you, the software leads you down the, the answer to your question. So this little dude that we were talking about before, just in two days of therapy, and this is the Veriflow black sponge, we had um, the top picture obviously is before and the bottom picture is after. 40 uh, mils for his elbow, but look at the skin around his elbow, like these guys are talking about. It really helps the peri-wound edema. And here's his uh, thigh, the inner thigh and the outer thigh. And again, just really great results. We are super happy. So decision making. When you have installation therapy, you know, we're a teaching hospital, so every three months I get a new set of residents and their minds are amazing, but they wanted a tool. So we said, okay, well, if you have a wound come in, early evaluation is best, but we know our surgical teams don't get there sometimes for six to 12 hours. So we have wound resource nurses and wound nurses proper that will go and put on the dressing. So what they're doing is if they look at the dressing and they say to themselves, this looks like it needs debridement, they put them in the waffle dressing, put the surgical consult in. Even if surgery gets there six, you know, four to six hours later, it's amazing how much work that machine and that dressing will do. If they go and look at the wound and they're like, it doesn't really need to be debrided, then they go into standard Veriflow um, with installation and that's kind of our practice. Really the only people we're doing standard VAC on is our skin grafts or our biologics. So here's a 64 year old lady that has all the fun comorbidities that everybody has to have. She was in the OR over the holidays, uh, December 16, 17, 20, 24. So this is a, just a bedside dressing change. They were doing wet to digesting. You can look at that peri-wound skin, it's pretty uh, gnarly. It was both sides of her leg and her foot. Back to the OR on the 24th for a little bit more debridement. And then one of my wonderful residents put her into the, did the decision-making tree, right, and put her into the um, gray waffle dressing with just 50 mils of a wound cleansing solution and she did a five minute uh, dwell every one hour and I asked her why and she said, well, I was worried about uh, leaks around the toes. And I'm like, okay, that's understandable. Um, 
So they take the dressing down. It looks pretty good. I think the foot looks a little dry, don't you guys think? I don't think she probably was getting fluid there quite enough with her vac setup. And clearly I was on vacation because it was the holidays. <laughs> so I felt kind of bad. But I was very proud of them and they were texting me lots of pictures. So, um, so on the third, I finally actually came back to work. And so back to the um, shower, I took the patient in to take down the dressings. And I use the dressing soak tool to uh, soak those dressings good before I take them down. And you can see she, they did a great job. She had a lot of really good advancements. Her periwound skin is looking good. She's actually growing some tissue on that foot. And so um, on the seventh, I think I missed one. Oh, yeah, so then what I decided was these wounds are too big for one pump. So we split pumps and we added um, a little bit of fluid, so we did 80 mils on one side and 120 on the other, um, and really tried to get that waffable contact layer against the areas that needed to be debrided. And by the seventh, she looked fantastic. And so this is kind of um, the decision making that we're, I think are going to be um, things that all of us are going to learn about together. So I'm not a foot person, but I thought the foot <laughs> progression was like super cool. Like I never get to work with feet. and and toes, it was just kind of fun for me, so I thought I'd put that in there for you guys. So when do you quit, when do you start and when do you quit? Well, this paper of Dr. Kim's is probably the best one I use, and honestly, I give it to my residents. They're, they're always like, when they come to the rotation, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, can I get that paper that you gave the last group? <laughs> and they use it all the time, but it really does help to um, shape what we're doing and when to start and stop, because it is kind of confusing <coughs> about when do you stop this kind of therapy. And here she is, that little gal, all skin grafted in February, which is cool. And her toes are still cute. So let's talk about how um, this little gal I was working with, um, we had, she had actually a big necrotizing fasciitis. It came all the way to her back and we've closed part of it. But I had two dressing changes about a week apart using the standard Veriflow um, dressing but I really wasn't getting what I needed, right? It doesn't look graft ready. And so the surgical team, when we take our dressings down, they come and take a look or whatever. And they kind of were like, come on, Marianne, what's the problem? This is not working. So I went back to Dr. Kim's paper and I changed up the solution. I used the, the waffle dressing. We called in urology and GYN and we backed across the vaginal vault onto the intact skin so we could go from um, 125 millimeters mercury went up to 150. And um, this is what the dressing looked like. I used installation up high for that big abdominal wound and then two negative pressure systems or track pads so I could Y them together. And then that one new tricky one that's a dually down kind of low because um, she did have a wound that went back to her um, buttocks. And you can see that I backed across onto the intact skin. So here's some of the uh, what I don't know, the residents always call it my secret sauce. I'm like, it's not secret and it's, it's not even sauce, but you know, they, I thought it might be helpful to someone, so I put this up. And then the next dressing change, look at how amazing she was. I mean, she really made huge progress and they did take her and do some skin grafting this day. Okay, so this is my, actually my world. I work in the world of surgery. And so this gal had obviously multiple different um, hernia repairs and when she came to us in 2017, you know, our team was like, well, 
we got some work to do, right? You have to lose some weight for sure. So she lost 75 pounds, bless her soul, and then we did Botox injections into her lateral muscles three weeks before surgery. She, this is what she had been dealing with for the years prior. She had that infected mesh. I'm sure you guys take care of these patients. They never heal. They keep draining. It's smelly. It's painful. But she had this big 17-centimeter gap. Most of her hernia was on the outside of her abdominal wall. And if you look at the inside of her abdominal wall, it's not as big as her hernia sac. So we did a reverse abdominoplasty. And you can see we took out some momentum and took out a bunch of calcified um, mesh. We put this huge piece of composite mesh tacked to the um, xiphoid down to the pubis, and um, this kind of gives you an idea of where things are. Her inferior rib margin and the superior iliac spine is kind of down where that scar is. Unfortunately, we didn't optimize her completely because we weren't able to close that gap. So we had a 14-centimeter gap that we added a second piece of bridging mesh. We closed her, put her in a um, Provena, so she went from this 17-centimeter um, gap to this closed 14-centimeter uh, gap, but with the bridged com composite mesh. Unfortunately, two weeks later, we took down you know, her back and that kind of stuff. She started to grow this kind of not healthy-looking incision, kind of like what Dr. Kim was talking about. These are the incisions that we're starting to see. And by the fifth, we knew we were going back to the operating room. She had a hematoma and she had a stroma. So in hindsight, Dr. Uh, Rosen out of Cleveland Clinics has the Atlas of Abdominal Wall Reconstruction. It's the best book ever. It's literally on my coffee table. I read it every day. And so there's, <laughs> there's a calculation in that book that you can look at a CT scan and calculate the size of the hernia compared to the size of the abdominal wall. If she would have lost another 25 pounds, our numbers wouldn't have been upside down because her hernia was quite a bit bigger than the size of her abdominal compartment which probably is what gave us the problems we had. So back to the operating room on the 5th, we put her into the waffle dressing, 10-minute soak, just a negative 75, but I was really worried that I couldn't grow tissue through two layers of composite mesh. And I don't know if anyone works in this area, but trying to grow, right, trying to grow tissue over this mesh is really hard, much less two layers. But in 10 days, look at what we did. We actually did grow tissue over it. I was so excited, like every dressing change, I was just giddy. And so my technique was is that I would use the waffle on the soft tissue, and then I just used a silicone open cell contact layer on where the composite mesh was, and I used one of the pieces of the cover, um, the cover foam, and it worked great. So. She was discharged her home on this day just with a standard back with the uh, contact layer. And here she is coming into clinic to see us uh, in February and April. And so we're really excited about using this even in a kind of a different way. But if you work in the world of um, open mesh injuries, this is a little gift for you. Okay, my last case because I think we're getting close to time. Prevention. So we've been standing here and telling you guys how amazing this stuff is. And you probably know because you've been using it. Um, but how about can we prevent the slough from beginning from the beginning, right? So our surgeons and I'm sure yours as well when they bring the fascia together They like to use Neuralon Sutures and they knot them up Independently all down the, the fascia, right? And then they grow this non-viable tissue because of the foreign body and so then we fight it for the next couple of weeks. We go back and debride. And, and you know, I work for a surgical team, so it's not that big of a deal. But for the patient, it's a slower 
um, healing process. And so at the beginning of, not this year, but the last year, we started to put our patients in the Cleanse Choice dressings um, immediately if they have fascial closure with sutures along the edge of it. So like this gentleman is a traumatic injury. He was at work and he got ran over by a truck and then they ran him over again, pulling away. And so he was in um, an uh, open abdomen dressing, but you can see he's just, he's just got too much swelling and damage. He also had lung injuries. And so um, we use a device that's a dynamic um, closure device that goes transfascially from one side of the abdomen through the muscle, through the fascia, up and over the bowel and out the other side. And then every day you go in and you kind of give them what's called the move, which means you hug their belly and kind of squish it in and then you tighten up these things kind of like a corset. And the reason that we're, we studied these particular patients is because our team, uh, the Complex Abdominal Reconstruction Service is what we're called, they call us CARS, um, when this is deployed, then that patient becomes ours. So we take the patient from trauma and acute care surgery. So we have a lot of control. So that was why we studied this group of patients. And so what we found is that with this uh, foam in place, we're not having any of that non-viable tissue coming into our wounds and we're, we're healing them faster. And so we've done 16 patients to date. Not one of them has needed debridement and they've all healed their wounds up. The other thing we've learned is that we've totally stopped putting uh, abdominal vac dressings in a horizontal fashion. We're, we're actually doing all of our abdominal wounds in a vertical fashion. So we put the contact layer on both sides and put the thin um, cover layer in the middle and we bring it together and we're bringing those wounds together faster. So everything is done now vertically, and then the incision usually looks kind of tiny, so you have to add a little bit of foam on the top, and then I add a puck underneath my negative pressure just to make sure that I can, you know, keep the thing working. And you can see, like, literally no non-viable tissue over those big knotted sutures. And so we're just thrilled for our patients and, and, the, and for us, you know, because it's a lot easier on our team when we don't have to keep debriding these folks. And here's that same gentleman in October when he came into clinic and you know, his biggest problem was is he was hairy and we were shaving him and pulling his hair off and I just felt ter terrible, but here he is and he said he's back to his hairy self. So I totally appreciate your time and thank you so much. That was a great job, guys. Um, we have a few minutes for questions. Are there any uh, questions from the audience? No questions. Fantastic. We're that thorough. Have a nice day, guys.